This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now. The alarming situation in Gaza and Palestine has now entered its fourth week, leaving over 8,000 Palestinians dead, of whom 3,000 are estimated to be children. The harrowing situation began on October 7th when an unprecedented attack by the armed rebel group Hamas left nearly 1400 Israelis dead and many hundreds taken hostage. On 27th October, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a major resolution on the Gaza crisis calling for an immediate, durable and sustained humanitarian truce leading to a cessation of hostilities. Despite this non-binding UN resolution, Israel continued and stepped up its bombardment on the Gaza strip. On Saturday, October 28th, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that Israel had entered the second stage of the war with Hamas, saying ground forces had gone into what he called that stronghold of evil. He also said this will be a long and hard war. Throughout Friday night, multiple reports and explosions lit up the sky above Gaza. On the same night, Palestinians were cut off from the world as well as inside the Gaza strip because of a total communication blackout. This blackout further made it difficult for ambulances to reach the injured. Harrowing videos have been emerging over the past 22 days of the scale of this escalation. Amid the chaos, humanitarian organizations continue to work tirelessly to provide aid, often risking their lives to deliver medical care and supplies to those in need. According to UNFPA, among Gaza's population of 2.2 million people, one in four are women and girls of reproductive age. An estimated 50,000 pregnant women are caught up in this conflict with over 5,000 due to give birth within the next 30 days. Hi, I'm Padma Priya and in this episode of the Suno India show, we will hear about the situation on the Gaza strip, how the violence is leaving aid workers stretched, doctors unable to help sufficiently and the continuing humanitarian crisis. I spoke to Farhat Mantu, executive director Metsonsons Frontiers, also known as Doctors Without Borders. a nobel peace prize winning organization on the situation in gaza msf2 has been calling for an immediate ceasefire to stop the bloodshed here's more from our conversation my name is farhat mantu i'm the executive director for medicines on frontiers also known as doctors without borders south asia it's a medical humanitarian organization that works around the world in more than 72 countries our prime role is to offer free medical care to populations in distress and attend the most vulnerable and the most excluded thank you so much uh farat i know msf has been working in palestine and in gaza for many years now for many decades now uh could you tell us um if what you are witnessing now as as the world as a humanity as a whole is this of a scale that has been seen ever before and can you also sort of describe the current medical crisis in the affected areas So like you said we have been uh, in that part of the world since 1989. So uh, our teams have witnessed uh, every escalation that has been in the Gaza strip uh, because I'll, I'll keep my focus to that. And uh, the current one that is ongoing uh, what I hear from my teams is it's unprecedented. It's it's a very small word huh? because we are really short of words what do we call it? Do we call it catastrophic? Do we call it dire? Do we call it terrible? but it is something that is literally unheard from a humanitarian point of view at least for our teams in the living history in the middle east 
talking about uh, the medical situation on the ground. For the sake of uh, listeners, it's important to have a bit of a context to this uh, aspect. Uh, Gaza has been a piece of land which is uh, roughly 365 square kilometer in size. We are talking about a very densely populated 2.2 million uh, people in a very small stretch of land from north to south. If you want to drive, you will just take one hour, even less than that. We're talking about 25 miles stretch. That's all what we are talking about. And this piece of land has been under uh, a blockade for more than 16 years now. So uh, already uh, over the years, the blockade has been intensified one way or the other. To a point just before this escalation that there were uh, supplies that were rationed. They were not uh, as if everything was being uh, sent into Gaza like a normal situation would, would uh, ask for. Um, so in a situation where the health structure is underfunded, overstretched, and uh, already uh, working with, with whatever resources they have, this uh, intense uh, indiscriminate bombing with more than 19,000 uh, patients uh, are reported uh, injured, uh, today, they say the number of uh, killed have uh, been uh, numbered to 8,000 and increasing. We're talking about uh, whatever is being uh, documented and reported through uh, Palestinian health authorities. But we also know that with this indiscriminate non-stop bombing, the situation on the ground is that the already sieged or an area which was under blockade did not have access to high quality machines that would help uh, find and recover injured under the rubble. So you're talking about people who have to use their hands to get out people who are under these buildings that have collapsed because of these bombings. So that's, that's one aspect of it. So we do not know how many of them are lying under there. So no account of that. Then the second bit is that uh, 35 hospitals and health facilities, that is a number that we have in Gaza. Out of that, as per WHO, from uh, and then the Palestinian health authorities, since October 24, 12 facilities are non-functional. And the remaining are working on a bare minimum with a complete siege of electricity, fuel, and supplies. 35 hospitals, in the best possible situation, we are talking about 3,500 to 4,000 beds. And look at the number of reported injured. So it is what would happen to all the other aspects that uh, would happen in a conflict. Who takes care of them? You have teams working there um, and you have, you know, you've been there for so long as MSF. And with this now a ground invasion unfolding, what does it mean for your colleagues there? And what does it mean for organizations like MSF or the UN or the WHO? What does, what does this mean, this intensified war now? There is... Uh... As, as, as I hear everyone say, there is no safe space to go in Gaza. Uh, it is not as if there is a certain part of Gaza that is spared, that we would say that uh, if people would move there, they would uh, have safety. All the entry and exit points of Gaza are blocked. So with this already shared with you, this 365 square kilometer of land, where are you expecting people to go? So the first thing is like we really are concerned about the safety and the security of not only our staff, not only our patients, but civilians, humanitarian workers. They should be spared. 
I, I, I would like to quote some statistics because I think it is important that, that as per WHO on October 23, they have documented 72 healthcare facilities have been attacked. So when hospitals are meant to be safe spaces, in this current context, hospitals are also being used as shelters. Not only hospitals, schools, anywhere, any stretch of land that people have a sense of safety, they use it for shelter. But all of them are being attacked. They're under attack. So if there is no respect from different warring parties to international humanitarian law, then how do you expect the system to operate? We as humanitarian organizations have always relied on respect from all the different parties in the conflict for international humanitarian law for sparing civilians and respecting healthcare, healthcare facilities, healthcare professionals and um, ambulances and so, so that we can keep on continuing treating the wounded um, during this conflict. You know, you did say that, you know, 72 health facilities were impacted. Today, I heard the chief of UNOHSR also talk about, I think, over 60 aid workers, also humanitarian workers, uh, having... Uh, you know, being killed uh, during their uh, while while working in Gaza. How? What are your colleagues who are on the ground telling you? Could you sort of give us a sense of how that is for your colleagues? So, what? Who do we have on ground? Is is both our uh, Palestinian colleagues, but also our international colleagues. Uh, we uh, have more than three hundred staff on the ground. And uh, from October 7, uh, the, many of the staff have either lost their homes, have lost their families, have relocated from one part of uh, Gaza to another part of Gaza. But they're torn between saving lives and also saving their families. It is not, it's, a, it's not an easy dilemma to be in. So uh, while they're seeking safety, they also want to do their duty of what they are supposed to be doing, medical act. And uh, in, in such an environment where you know that, that nobody is spared, uh, what is the sense that, that you have to operate? Something which, which, which may be almost unheard of in, in modern history. We're talking about doing surgeries without anesthesia. There's no post-surgical care. What happens to IPC? The hospital which is meant to be a hospital, is also a shelter for more than 60,000 women, children, and elderly. So uh, in in that environment is where our teams are. They are a part of the population. And also uh, our uh, international teams, uh, they are not able to coordinate. Look, the needs are immense. But we are running, almost we have run out of all the supplies we have. So even for our own staff, Drinking water is an issue. Where do you get that drinking water? Shelter is an issue. It is not that, that they are also internally displaced in this context. So uh, while we wish to continue our humanitarian medical work, but we also want uh, to enable that if our staff wants to seek safety, we should be able to enable it. So that's that's where we stand today. Um, just a little you know, uh, just a bit before, you did touch upon very briefly about how you need all parties to respect the international humanitarian law, all the warring parties, for you, for medical humanitarian organizations or aid organizations to do their work. In such a situation, what is, you know, how do you, how, how are you now engaging with local and international authorities? And are the usual sort of tactics working here? What we have been observing is... Uh 
that health facilities are being attacked there is uh, disregard uh, for um, kind of distinction between uh, civilians combatants and non combatants yeah. so uh, we want our staff patients healthcare workers uh, to be allowed uh, safety to be allowed to do their medical work now talking about uh, current situation on the ground as a medical humanitarian organization we go by the principles of impartiality neutrality and we make sure that we speak to all parties in a conflict and our intention to speak and engage with everyone is from a point of view that we want access to our patients we want safety for our patients we want to make sure that we are able to do what we are supposed to be doing any humanitarian organization the prime objective of an organization a humanitarian organization is to act and that is what we are asking every party to respect it and allow us to do what we can do the needs are immense on the ground but because there are um, no supplies being allowed in our teams are exhausted imagine you are talking about we are talking about now third or fourth week of uh, uh, entering into this escalation Ima- imagine exhaustion of the teams on the ground that they have to deal with a non-stop flow of patients we want to make sure that we want to bring in more emergency teams we want to bring in more supplies we want to do more but that is what we want every party to respect and allow us to do that uh, i was reading your the press release that msf had put out yesterday um and one of the statements which is i think very very strong is about how the actions of the world leaders are too weak too slow as a non-binding un resolution for humanitarian truce has done nothing to rein in the indiscriminate violence unleashed on helpless people what more do you think needs to be done for us because if a uh, one this is a non-binding un resolution but if a un resolution is not stopping the other party from indiscriminate carpet bombing what more can can world leaders do i think international community and government needs to step up because there is there is no other way there is no other way because what would happen today is going to be the precedence for future so gaza is not the only place we are talking about afghanistan we are talking about yemen we are talking about ukraine we are talking about sudan this is going to set the tone for future humanitarian interventions and respect for international humanitarian law so we are asking for an immediate ceasefire and we want the international community community the global leaders to step up and enforce that and put all the leverage they have influence they have on all the warring parties to adhere to that and allow us allow organizations like us to be able to operate allow people that space where they have uh, where we can go and look for injured where we can treat injured where we can be sure that our teams are safe so uh, there is there is no other uh, way of of expressing it uh, the worry i personally have as 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 a humanitarian worker is that today is going to set the tone for tomorrow and we really want the tone to be set right we need a world order where interna- where there is respect for international humanitarian law there needs to be some common respect for humanity and allow all the humanitarian organizations to be able to operate in that space the space is shrinking a few days ago msf also announced that they had sent in some aid i think 24 tons of aid into gaza has that reached gaza or uh, is it en route what is the situation because i know on a daily basis there would be like 300 trucks entering gaza but that's not the scenario anymore 
So we did uh, yesterday uh, or day before we managed to send 26 tons of uh, medical supplies uh, in a WHO plane through Egyptian Red Crescent. And we hope that it reaches uh, as soon as possible. Like you already shared that uh, from the Rafah border or, or different entry points in Gaza, on a daily basis, there would be a moment of 300 to 500 supply trucks every day. We are talking since October 20, we're talking about 84 trucks. It's a drop in the ocean. And again, I already say it is a place where there was already a shortage before the escalation of October 7. So on top of it, you, um, I, I, I did share it with some of my colleagues earlier uh, in the week that, that in the first few days, MSF uh, finished supply that was meant for three weeks in three days. So you have to recognize that, that here we are talking about a drop in the ocean. Huh? And uh, also, we should be allowed to bring in drugs that we need to treat our patients on. And like I said, it's not just on the trauma and the burn. We're talking about um, unsafe drinking water. Uh, we are talking about uh, uh, newborn babies. Uh, and, and, and let me take you to something very basic that happens in our households, wherever we are. We are talking about uh, survival here. Imagine young girls. Imagine women who have delivered babies. Where do they get their uh, sanitary napkins from? Where there is, like, are we, we, we are talking about a population that is even denied the basics. And what would it mean for future? So look at these three weeks, all the immunization that has been missed. We won't see the impact of this today. But in future, we will definitely see the impact. So uh, while we are focused too much on trauma, we also have to recognize that many patients would have never made it to the dialysis or the cancer treatment because they would never be prioritized. What about insulin shots for patients, diabetic patients? Where would they get those supplies from? How would they store insulin when there is no electricity? Imagine the constant bombarding and, and all the roads that lead to a potential hospital are broken. There is no fuel in a car. How do you expect patients to reach where they can uh, seek care? So when we look at supplies, we have to look at it in totality of what it means for the population that is under the siege. And not just focus on the trauma part of it, you say. Yeah. Yes. And the long-term impact this is going to have overall on the health of the population. Um, coming to an important point, I think you did talk about you know women who are delivering babies. This has been uh, something that has been spoken about a bit. Uh, but when there is this constant bombardment happening and hospitals are full, where are they actually delivering? To be very candid with you, Padma Priya, we do not know. We do not know because uh, all the hospitals are overwhelmed with injured patients, burn victims. Because what is happening is like when uh, the buildings are collapsing, either they are, there is a fire or there is a trauma. So they are being prioritized. And we, we really do not know. So if you ask me, where are, how are women delivering babies? I do not know. And uh, then we ask ourselves, where are they going to go for help? And it's not only delivering baby post-delivery care. Where do they get that care from? So, uh, yeah, we, we do have some very real human problems at hand. And uh, when a conflict happens, like it's, it's just like, I'll take you a minute to uh, COVID and COVID happened. Everybody started 
putting their attention to covid as if the rest of the world and the rest of the disease had stopped there was still tb happening hiv happening hepatitis happening ncds were still there so nobody was uh, or or emergency obstetrics was there nobody and elective surgeries were there cancer treatment was there all the attention went to covid it is just like that in in gaza all the attention is currently treating trauma and I'm rightly so but then there is there is a large part of healthcare where which nobody is even talking about there is also the the tragedy of uh, now i think close to 3000 children who have been killed in this in this war and um i think save the children has said that this is i think one of the highest number of children being killed in a in a conflict what is the emotional tone for a uh, toll that it, it takes on 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 people you know especially aid workers could you take us sort of behind the scenes on what is hap- what happens in 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 situations like this i mean it's not just like you rightly pointed out before it's gaza it's yemen it's sudan you know this this we, there are so many multiple conflicts happening around the world and i know as someone who is sort of also consuming this sort of we are watching it as journalists tracking it it does take a toll on us but you know not a lot is actually spoken about the the toll that's it's taking on doctors on nurses on paramedics on any of the aid workers so could you sort of take, tell us a bit about that so usually msf uh, would uh, start with with very specific uh, interventions and and um, gaza is one of those places where they had started a program in 2019 called help for helpers because already we were seeing that in the health facilities where msf was working there was a very high level of trauma experienced by the frontline workers and we are not only talking about doctors and nurses it's everyone in the hospital that would experience that trauma so uh, that that was something that was felt need in 2019 and you can just assume what does it mean now if there were there, there was the frontline who was already so much traumatized what would it mean to see the amount of trauma and the helpness around it because it's not that that they cannot save lives it is they cannot save lives because there are not sufficient supplies they have to make choices and and uh, the um, moral um, kind of um, burden that comes with that it is it's not easy to deal with um, in an ideal situation msf would go for psychological first aid uh, in, in in trying to relieve uh frontline workers uh with uh, who who are uh, dealing with the situation 24/7 and also what we would do is we would frequently change teams but this situation has left us with no choices of that sorts so uh imagine a population that is already traumatized and then already uh, next to that they are uh, um, under this moral distress if if that's the right word i'm i'm using here that that uh, the teams are experiencing and uh and next to that uh, there is no stop in that i think it's 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 also there it is relentless it it doesn't stop and there is no hope and what that is that is why i i i bring it back to the point uh, that the world leaders the international community needs to stand up and talk about all of this um for generations uh, and the impact of uh, what is happening today will be felt um in 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 such an environment usually uh, what would happen in a society is like a breakdown of normal coping mechanisms in a, in in a normal uh, setup so already uh, the population was experiencing uh, 
a 16 year old and long blockade and uh, with this uh, it's all about survival i i uh, managed to uh, share uh, a week back a testimony from one of my colleagues who works as a translator for us and i'm not going to paraphrase it because it left me in a lot of distress but um, she's a mother uh, and she was displaced from north to south and at the same time she was with her children and her mother and husband were in a different place so um, all the struggles for her was did the generator have enough fuel would she be able to get another next meal for their children would they survive the night so these are their immediate concerns mental health is the last thing that uh, comes on their mind yeah it's it's basically on a on a survival mode that they are in right now yeah um one other interesting thing that i mean i i think i again not a lot of uh, organizations have actually said it loudly as msf is you know you have said that those who want to seek safety across the border should be allowed to do so without prejudice to the right to return to gaza um and you know how that that your staff are unable to coordinate the humanitarian activities which you did mention before um could you would you be able to elaborate a bit about this about you know wanting to cross the border and is that possibility still there as of today with this ground invasion that has begun as of today no um, all the rafa border is uh, is, is not uh, open for people to go out so our teams are stuck inside gaza uh seeking for safety wherever possible um when we say everybody you and me equally have a right to uh, seek safety it is a small stretch of land and people are seeking safety wherever they believe it's safe and in a, in a place where there is nowhere safe to be and uh i want is is like as somebody who is a part of uh, messes on frontiers it's our duty of care towards our staff and duty of care towards our patients and and uh, we are trying whatever is within our um, limits to be enabling that so to facilitate it but uh, again we are a medical humanitarian organization our work is medical action we act so how much political leverage we have we are not there for that we are there to our medical work and speak what we experience in our work. I think you did sort of briefly talk about this but can you explain now that you have you've spoken about the limitations in terms of medical supplies and medical resources um you know aid workers exhausted in such a scenario how does uh, you know how do how do you, how does msf prioritize and allocate these resources because like you said it's not just about trauma there is there are so many other things unfolding there our first priority is to see that uh, we have emergency teams as well as supplies very closely lined up uh, near the rafa crossing and we are looking for any possibility of entry and bringing in supplies as well as teams to be able to see what are the most urgent needs that are um, being not attended to and for that it's not only focus on north it's focus across the entire gaza strip uh, what is important is our teams are working on the ground and they are trying to do their little bit but um what what we were doing there was like uh burn surgeries trauma 
and for that you need an ot you need an uh, you need a ot that is functional you need the electricity for that in the hospital post surgical care is taken into account so uh, at this stage we are not able to do it but uh, the moment uh, we will have and hopefully we should have uh, entry into gaza our teams will look at unmet needs and prioritize them and this is done through a quite extensive consultation and looking at uh, the existing health facilities what is missing and we will try to see what is the need that nobody else is taking care of yeah um and maybe this is like a this is a conversation i know that you know msf always does have about maintaining impartiality and neutrality in medical humanitarian efforts um how are you doing that in this current context um because there are it seems like for us at least sitting here on the other side of the world it seems very one sided there is you know carpet bombing happening so how does msf still manage to maintain its impartiality not an easy one to uh, hold on to I, i'll try to take a minute to talk about something i think that is very important uh, and and it's important for uh, listeners to hear about that they say language is powerful language is dangerous so what we see is that our role as a medical humanitarian organization is to make sure these principles of impartiality neutrality and humanity guide us when we operate on the ground there are our safeguards they give us that space to operate and not take any sides of any party to the conflict we are there for the populations we serve uh, but we also recognize when i say language is powerful and language is dangerous we talk about misinformation and disinformation so not gone is the era when all the wars would be fought or the conflicts would be dealt with on the ground in the in the armed space we are talking about info, digital information war we see a lot of narrative and um, i would say when you talk about uh, the vocabulary that is being interchanged so uh, what we really want to do is keep our focus on what we see as an organization we say telling it as it is and that's what is our guiding compass in this situation also other thing that's mentioned in the in the press release um you know where msf is demanding an immediate ceasefire is that you're also talking about this collective punishment that is prohibited under, under international humanitarian law could you explain what that means what does collective punishment in a war mean and what is your what is msf's demand here so what are the guiding principles of 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 a conflict where international humanitarian law applies it is we talk about proportionality we talk about protection we talk about distinction distinction between combatant and non combatant distinction between uh, civilian infrastructure and non civilian infrastructure distinction between health facilities health workers and uh, health infrastructure as compared to military installations so uh, in this context what we see that this indiscriminate bombing and documented through who the number of attacks on the health facilities and uh, forcing people to kind of move and if people want to stay back then it's an obligation to offer them protection and safety that is not what we see on the ground so that is that is quite critical for us to be aware of when we look at this context uh, a complete siege of the population by not allowing 
food supplies water electricity these are basic essentials that every individual needs for their survival so, so these are some of the elements that are uh, important that when in a conflict um, you do not um, kind of have a collective approach you are able to distinguish between uh, civilian and non-civilians uh, you also have to see is like over the weeks there have been different calls of evacuating hospitals but evacuating to where like it is not that there is another hospital ready to take them on it is not that the ambulances that would take them may or may not be attacked because there is evidence recorded evidence of attack on ambulances so in that situation when we talk about um, this is inhumane to talk about evacuating a hospital where you have uh, recently operated operating is not saving a life there is a post op care that is essential some people have been amputated huh? so so how are you going to uh, um, some are burn victims with varying degree of burns how are you going to really move them out out of icus out of ventilators so uh, all this uh, in a way is is points uh, all, all the ingredients of of, of uh, what we call a collective punishment i have noticed that in the in the communication that msf is putting out and i'm also asking this because you said language is important that the word genocide has not been used um whereas you know pretty much everybody else is calling this a, a, a genocide what is the reason for that look we are not a legal organization our our job is not to qualify what the elements we spoke about let's leave it to the legal organizations we stick to our mandate of being a medical humanitarian organization and that is where we want to keep their attention to so what we are trying to do is as i told you is like we are sharing with the world testimonies from our staff of what they are experiencing on the ground and if all of that constitutes into something that has a legal definition i will leave to legal organizations to take it